Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time to gather um, together and worship you, this opportunity to worship you, to commune with you in prayer, to hear your word, to study it, Lord, and to seek you out. Uh, we thank you for the word that you've placed on Trent's heart this week and the message that he's about to deliver. Um, Father, we, we ask that, that you use that word, your word, that you've placed in his heart to penetrate our hearts, Lord, to be planted in the fertile soil of our, of our soul. And um, Lord, we ask that you nourish it, that it would grow um, protected to grow into what you want it to be. Um, we thank you, Father, again, and um, we just praise you for your, <laughs> this is for your glory and your honor, Lord. Hosanna in the highest. We thank you, and um, Lord, we thank you that your promises are yes and amen. When you say, when, you, when we seek, uh, we shall find, Lord. When we ask, we shall receive. And so, Lord, we stand on that. So we thank you. Pray your blessing over Trent and over this time. Alice, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, shake my hand. Thanks, man. Yeah. Appreciate it. Um, every preacher's nightmare is getting up in the morning on Sunday morning and uh, cleansing your body, cleansing your soul, trying to get focused, and you have this brand new idea for the passage that you're supposed to preach, and it doesn't, it's not part of the passage you're supposed to preach. That happened to me this morning. Um, I had this epiphany, and I'm just going to tell you just a couple of seconds here, because it, it's kind of cool. I, I'm going to encourage you to read the entire chapter, Luke chapter seven that we're in today. And um, I'm concentrating primarily on the, uh, the, the raising of the widow's son in Nain. And, uh, and then John the baptizer sends some messengers to Jesus asking some questions. But there's this, all of a sudden this thing just jumped in my head, this, this contrast. There's a centurion who's a Roman soldier in charge of a hundred men. And he's got a slave that is sick and dying. And so this centurion sends a delegation to Jesus. Centurion doesn't come himself. Sends a delegation to Jesus and says, I'm a man who understands authority. And so I know that if I say to a soldier, come, he comes. If I say to a soldier, go, soldier, go he goes. I get it. So you're a man with authority. If you say that my servant, my slave is going to be okay, that he's healed, then he's healed. So, and Jesus is astonished at this man's faith. He goes, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. This is a man, a centurion, a Roman soldier that should not understand who Jesus is in any shape, form, or fashion, but he gets it. And then later you hear John the baptizer who, who was conceived for the very purpose of preparing the way for Jesus. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But he sends a delegation go, are you the one that we're supposed to be waiting for or not? So one who should understand doesn't, one who shouldn't does. There's all kinds of contrasts in this chapter. It's very cool because Luke in particular, Jesus is doing this. He's interacting with Jews and Greeks and um, and other Gentile people, and it's interesting to see how people understand and how people misunderstand. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. So there, there's this story of this woman um, that, that loses her son. And I just want to give you a little, a little background on the culture of the time. If you watch the news, and I hope you don't, because it's just uplifting all the time. Um, and if you're online, you get your news online, you know that everything is true online and everyone is just, again, encouraging and uplifting and just, how can I bear witness to your spirit? 
Um, but you'll hear on, uh, people are very upset and there's this big, this big movement about our patriarchal culture and, and I get it and there's probably some of that there, but we have no idea what patriarchal cultures were. We, first century was unbelievably patriarchal to the point where a woman had no rights in and of herself. She was property of her husband and a daughter was property of her father. In fact, we have some traditions that we still keep going today that once you recognize where they come from, you're going to kind of go, I'm not so sure we could continue that. For example, um, it used to be that when a son, uh, one, one father was, found out that his son is going to marry another father's daughter, and in order for that marriage to take place, the father of the son had to come up with, we call it a dowry, or at least you might have heard that term, but come up with compensation to the father for the household labor he's going to lose when his wife or his daughter leaves his household and starts to serve her husband in a different household, okay? So he had to pay for the right to compensate the father for the loss of household labor. Now, that's an unusual thing, although if you're the father of the daughter, now you pay for the wedding. It's expensive. Back then, you got money if you gave your daughter away. But that's where our tradition of giving the, giving the bride away comes from. The father would walk, would walk into the wedding, and he would, he would give this property away to another man. Now, we kind of call it the presentation of the bride now instead of the giving of the bride that because the father doesn't really own the, it's not how it works. But there's another thing that happens in, in our culture that, that's very patriarch that, that we still has remnants of that patriarchal culture. Um, that remember you, you hear every now and then you mainly see it on TV. You don't hear it much in actual weddings anymore. But when, when the pastor says, if anyone here has just cause that this woman and this man should not be bound in the bond of holy matrimony, speak now or forever hold your peace. You've heard that right? You know what that is? That is if, where that comes from is if, if somewhere back in the day, the father of this daughter contractually obligated her to be married to someone else, if you've got just cause that she can't marry this man because she's been promised to another, speak now or that contract is void. And remember when, when, when Joseph and Mary were betrothed, but they weren't married, they were married, but they weren't married, married? That's that idea, that they were, they were contractually committed to one another forever. It's a legal thing, but they hadn't been married, married yet. So that's the kind of culture that this thing takes place in. A, a daughter does not have any rights except that her father gives. And when she's married, the wife has no rights except what her husband gives her. So here's this woman, and we'll read this passage, and I'll kind of pause as we go, but... Um, she, this woman has lost everything. She's in a figurative prison. And I want you just to, to be thinking, culturally speaking, this woman's life is over. Not, she won't breathe anymore, but she is completely dependent on her community to where she can go, when she's going to eat. Just like if you're in prison, you eat only if they bring you food. You go out into the courtyard only when they allow you out. You come and go as they tell you to come and go. That that's, a, that's what this woman, find, the place she finds herself in because she's not only a widow, but she's lost her only son. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, probably 250 to 500 people. And his disciples in a large crowd went along with him. And as he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, 
Don't cry. Now, I've, you've heard me say this before, but I would encourage you as a pastor, as a preacher, as one who proclaims the word of God to, to, to imitate the Lord in all that you do. In fact, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1 in, in a paraphrased version says, imitate the Lord in all that you do just as a much-loved child imitates his father. And I would say absolutely imitate the Lord everywhere you go and everything you do except at funerals because he interrupted everyone he ever went to. If you think about the little girl who was dead and he walked in and he, he said to her, Little one, arise, Talitha Kum. If you think of Lazarus, he shows up and he's been dead for a couple of days. They've got the burial clothes on him. He's put away in the tomb and Jesus walks up. He weeps, but he walks up and he says, Lazarus, come out. But here's a woman who's already lost her husband. And the only thing she has going for her is that she has a son. And not only does she have a son who's now died, but he didn't die a couple of days ago like we do it now. When, when someone dies, and you, you, you meet with the funeral home, you plan, you write an obituary, you put it out there. And two to four days later, you gather everyone together for visitation and then a funeral. Their tradition was if you die before sunset, they're going to put you in the ground before sunset. So hours before this, this woman has lost her only son. Hours before this, this woman who's already a widow now realizes that her entire life as she knows it is over. From this point forward, the only way she will eat, because she can't own property, the only way she can eat is if the goodwill of the people in the community bring her food. And that might last like it does today when people drop off casseroles and they drop off um, different kind of pan dishes that after, after a death of someone someone, it lasts for a couple of weeks. What's her life going to look like? And then Jesus walks up and says the most insane, and forgive me, just, just bear with me for a second. If you're not Jesus, you say this to someone who just lost her only son after she's lost her husband. She's alone in the world. She's in prison for all intents and purposes, not behind locked bars, but her life is no longer her own. And he walks up and he says, don't cry. It's ridiculous. And I've heard God-awful things said to people. There was a, one family years ago who lost a four-year-old daughter. And someone walks up at visitation and says this. Jesus must have wanted her more than you. What? How dare you? Does that comfort that mother? Of course not. It actually makes her kind of angry with God. He would take He's that selfish that he would take my, we don't do this well. We don't know what to say. It gets awkward. And sometimes we try to say nice things and they come off wrong. Jesus though, when he says to a woman who's already lost her husband and now just that day has lost her son, her only son. And he says, don't cry. He can do it because of what he's about to do. But folks, we shouldn't behave like that. He says, says he went up to the, and he touched the coffin. And by the way, the word in Greek is just that which holds the body. Okay. They didn't really have coffins. They had kind of a slab or a board that they would put the, the dead body on. And they didn't don't do the embalming. They don't do the makeup. They don't make them look good. They're walking out of the town, going off to the, to the, to the burial site. And Jesus walks up, uh, went up to those and touched the, touched, makes himself unclean. You don't touch a dead body. And those that were carrying it stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, get up, exclamation point there. And the dead man sat up and began to talk. What did he say? Honestly, what did he say? But he sat up and he began to talk. And, he, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. And they were all filled with awe, 
Oh, yeah, hopefully. And praise God, a great prophet has appeared among us. They said, God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding countryside. Couple of things there. This is not the first time that Jesus said, it's not the only time that Jesus says, young man, I say to you, get up. He says the same thing to the paralytic when the four friends come and they dig through. And I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that these are teenagers because no homeowner would ever dig through that roof of another house, you know, to help their friend. They would knock on the door or wait forever. To, but not teenagers, man. They tear through and Jesus is in there. And we, we know the picture we have of him. He's British, blue eyes, real thin. And he's in there saying things like, blessed are the peacemakers. And the, du- it's a sod roof, right? What? He backs off, they dig the hole, the four guys are looking down, and then they take him in a, this matted blob because they didn't have poles and they didn't, so they, he's all tied up in this mat and they drop him down before Jesus. And Jesus says, he looks up and he sees their faith and he says, because of their faith, he looks down, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the people that are supposed to understand who Jesus is, they go, they go, they're, they're, they're going, who can forgive sin but God, but God alone? And Jesus goes, why are you thinking this? So that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, young man, you pick up your mat and you walk. And he sat up and he picked up his mat and he walked out of there. Another time in John chapter 5, the healing of the invalid at the pool. It says there that he was an invalid for 38 years. And Jesus walks up and he says, do you want to get well? And the, young, and the, and the guy said, he's not a young man, I guess, if he's been an invalid for 38 years. But he says, do you want to get well? And the guy doesn't come up with a reason why. He doesn't say, yeah. He doesn't answer the question Jesus asked. Well, every time I try to get into the pool, someone else is never ahead of me. And Jesus, it, it, it's, it's interesting in the, in the Greek that Jesus almost sarcastic. He goes, get up. You pick up your mat and walk. He says this time, get up, get up, get up. What's he saying? He's saying, you respond in obedience to the command that I just gave you. This dead man, I don't know how it works. When I, when I breathe my last, I don't know if I'm immediately transported to the presence of Christ. I don't know if it's not until Pastor Greg is standing over my graveside and he says, we commit these earthly remains to the ground from ashes to ashes, from dust to dust, from earth to earth. And, and we commend his eternal soul to our Father in heaven. I don't know if that's when I'm in the presence. I don't know. But I do know that this young man was dead, dead. All the way dead. They knew what death was. And Jesus resuscitates him. And he commands a dead man. How does he hear? Where is his soul? I don't know. But he says, young man, I say to you, get up. And he sat up and he started talking. I still want to know what he said. And he gives him back to his mom. And I don't know about his mom. I don't know about you. But he was just dead. I don't know if I'm going to touch him right now. Take a shower. But he didn't just heal that young man. He didn't, and I don't know if he, if he said, man, I was just, I was just, there was a light and I was going toward it and then I got sucked back in. I don't know. But I do know this because it wasn't just for the young man. It was for this woman. Her life as she knew it was over. And he restored her in front of the whole community that you are no longer without a voice. You are no longer without property rights. You are no longer dependent on other people. I have given you back your son, and the people get it, but they don't get it. It says here that they, 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 they were in awe. I hope so, because if I were at a funeral two months ago or two weeks ago, and Pastor Greg standing here in the coffins right here, and he, he puts his hand on it and says, I say to you, get up. And all of a sudden we hear, huh? I, wah. I, I don't know what I would do. And I don't think Greg would know what to do either. Although he's way more holy than I am, so he might. It's astonishing. 
And what we don't always know about the people at that time is it had been 400 years since God had done miraculous things, since God had spoken to his people. And so when they say a great prophet has come, God is now with his people. They know that when God sends messengers, great things happen. And just two miles from here, a Sunamite woman, years before, Elisha had showed up and he had raised her son back from the dead. And Elijah, which was a little bit further than, than 10 miles or than two miles away, but he had one time in First in Kings 17 through 20 in there, uh, he had laid over a young man three times and, and raised him from the dead. So they, they get it. When, if, if people are coming back from the dead, there's a prophet. But they get it. And Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. But he's more than just a great prophet. So they get it, but they don't get it. They understand, but they don't understand. And this woman had been in a virtual prison, and now her life is restored. That is a wonderful, glorious, unthinkable thing. But then the very next thing that happens is as is as unthinkable, but it's not as glorious. John, John the baptizer, John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, John, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who was to come? Or should we be expecting someone else? And when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask this question. Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits. And he gave sight to the many who were blind. Now, I just want you to picture this for a minute. John, remember who John is. John, even before John had a will of his own, he was already bearing witness to who Jesus is. Do you remember Elizabeth? Zechariah and Elizabeth, Zechariah's a high priest. He gets in there. He's told that his, his wife, who's very old and barren, is going to have a child. Um, she, she, she conceives a, a child. And then her cousin, um, Mary, after Jesus was, was conceived, she makes a journey over to Elizabeth. And Elizabeth tells us that when, when Mary, who has Jesus in utero, enters the home, the child within her leapt, leapt, leaped. He he knew who Jesus was even then. This is the man who baptized Jesus. And when he shows up, he goes, words coming after me, who, whose, sand, whose thongs of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. John, when he baptized Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God descended on him in bodily form like a dove and said, you are my son to Jesus, not to John, in whom I'm well pleased. And elsewhere we hear that, that he said that the Holy Spirit of God said, listen to him. John witnessed that. John knows who Jesus is. John should be certain of who Jesus is. But he still, he, yeah, he, got, he had his calling to be a prophet. And yeah, he got in some trouble. Because he called out sin where sin really was. And when he called out sin to the wrong person, that wrong person decided to put him in jail. And he put him in jail. And John is hearing about all these miraculous things that are coming up. And he's still not certain that Jesus is who he is, is the Messiah. And so he sensed, are you... Are, are you, just tell, are you the one? And here's Jesus' response. Oh, by, by the way, his disciples come up, or John's disciples come up and they go, hey, are you the one? And Jesus doesn't answer their question. I always hated that as a kid when you say to your mom, hey, hey mom, mom can, I, uh, can I go over to John's house? My friend John told. Um, and she just kept doing what she was doing. She didn't answer my question. Or if you ask a teacher and they just turn around, they start writing on a board. Like, just answer my question. They ask him the question and he just keeps on healing people. And then he turns to him and he says this. Go back and report to John 
what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. And then he says this strange thing, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Now, if you have a good study Bible, and I encourage you to go back and read this and to do this study, but if you have a good study Bible, you'll see that what Jesus is quoting is a bunch of messianic texts, predictions of the Messiah from Isaiah, several different chapters. John knows his scriptures very well. And so when Jesus answers his question, is, is, are you the one who was to come or should we be looking for someone else? And he says, the blind see, the lame walk, leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached. Those are all Isaiah. But he left something out. He left out, and the prisoners will be set free. So John wants to know, is he the one who was to come? And he also wants to know if Jesus is going to get him out of prison. Because his expectation of who the Messiah was was military. It was civil. He was supposed to come on a white horse and to gather up the armies of God like the judges of old and like some of the prophets of old. And even the, the most recent one that they had heard anything about was Maccabees, the Maccabean revolt, where the, the remnant went up into the hills and they, they stayed faithful to God and this tiny little ragtag army that had no, that had no weapons, they defeated those who were, who, were, who, who were lording it over them and who had captured captured their city and everyone was turning to, to worship false gods and they just said, no more. That's the picture people have. The Messiah is going to come and he's going he's to raise up an army against Rome. And he's going he's to shut Rome down and send them away. And then God through his people are going to rule the earth for all eternity. That's John's picture of the Messiah. And John was a different kind of man than Jesus. John was more like me. A little bit more high strung. Someone who should not, if he's going to preach, should not drink coffee before. He was a guy, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't dress right. He wore, he wore skins. He didn't wash his hair. He ate locusts. He didn't drink anything good. He, he just, he was a guy that yelled at people and called them to repentance. So John, and he sees Jesus and Jesus comes in and he's healing people. He's hanging out with sinners. He's, he's talking to tax collectors. He's casting out demons. And he wants to know, is there, is this, I came to prepare the way and then you're coming to prepare the way and then there's another one? And Jesus says this, fortunate, blessed is the man who does not fall away because of me. Isn't that weird? Any of you fall away because of Jesus? But here's the thing. John had the wrong picture of what the Messiah was going to look like. He was expecting a military leader, an overthrower, an insurrectionist, a zealot. He wasn't expecting a suffering servant. He wasn't expecting a humble man. He wasn't expecting demons to flee. He was expecting Rome to flee. So he had a misunderstanding of who the Messiah is. He had a misunderstanding of who God made flesh is and who he's supposed to be, what he's supposed to do. If you, under, if you go, like, how could you miss it? Let me just give you an example. Um, premarital couples. I give them, I, when I meet with them for the first session, I always give the guy an assignment. 
And this is near the end. I give them homework. Before we meet next time, I want you to take her on a date because I think that every, I've never met a woman in premarital counseling that doesn't want their soon-to-be husband to continue to court them or pursue them. And so I'm trying to let him know that you need to, once you have her, it doesn't mean you've got her. You need to continue to pursue her. And so I say to him, and I, and I link the explanation. I'll shorten it here, but I say, look, and I don't care what it is. I don't care what you do. Just figure out something that you know both of you will really enjoy. It'll be a great time, but you call her up. And if you're taking her out on a Friday, Wednesday's the cutoff. And you, you call her up. And if you get a call and hang up a couple times and, you know, but no one does this anymore. If you got to hang up a couple of times, um, you know, to be all nervous, if you want to play it up, that's fine. I had one guy years ago that, 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 that set up the date and he, and he went to his, uh, fiance's, um, uh, apartment. She had a roommate, so he let her in, and he, he, put a, he put a rose behind the couch. And when he came to pick her up for the date, he goes, um, hey, he came over and gave her a hug, and he, he acted like he dropped something. He goes, oh, I dropped, I, I dropped, and he goes back there, and he comes out with a rose. Pretty smart. And then they were driving to Grand Rapids, and he goes, are you thirsty? I'm kind of thirsty. I could use a Pepsi or something. And he had two bottles of Pepsi stuck in the snowbank on the side of the road right by the, right by the um, rest stop on the way to Grand Rapids. And he pulls over, and he pops them up. And so, I mean, he just thought it out. It was pretty So I give that example to the guy, and, and, uh, and, and I'm saying, look, it doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have to be a whole day. It doesn't have to be uber romantic. Just something you know. You plan it. You pursue her. You call her. You ask her out. And she can only ask you this question, what should I wear? And then I tell her, because you, you do that lengthy explanation, you can watch. They always look up to the right, and they start thinking about what this is going to be like. They kind of fantasize about it. And I tell her, no fantasy. Because no matter what you come up with, he's going to come up with something different. And so he's going to end up disappointing you. And that's not fair to him. Mind reading costs extra. <laughs> Same thing happens with us with Jesus. We fantasize about what he's like. We want him to be what we want him to be instead of who he actually is. The people wanted a great prophet. They didn't necessarily want a Messiah. John wanted, uh, he, he wanted a savior in, in a military sense or in a cultural sense. He didn't want God with his people to save them from their sins. And so I ask you folks, two people were in prison. One metaphorically, one physically. One is released and she had no expectation that anyone was going to save her from her dead son. Save her life by bringing death, a dead man, back to life. And John expected to be released from prison. There were two prisons and there's one release. Neither got what they expected. Are you expecting God to give you what you want? Are you expecting God to be who he is? Because we shouldn't be asking God to give us what we want. We should be, God should be asking us to do what he wills. We should be available. And so I challenge you to read the gospel according to Luke as if you've never read it before. So that you get a picture of who God wants Jesus to be and not who we want Jesus to be. Because we clean him up. We forget the passages that say things like this. Any servant who knows his master's will and does not do it will be beaten with many blows. But we love the part that says, blessed are those. We love the part where we're forgiven of our sins, but we can't stand the part that says, when someone slaps you upside the head, turn the other cheek and let him do it again. We love, we love the part where 
He will never leave us or forsake us, but we can't stand the part that says you must love your enemies. We love to be forgiven, but we don't want to forgive those who harm us. See, the picture, the expectations that we have, he's a good teacher, he's a great religious leader, or his job is to make our lives easier, and it's not. John is a great testament to the fact that God did not come to make his life easier. John's life was harsh, and he dies in prison. So are you like the centurion who shouldn't get it but does? Are you like the the widow who life has just dumped all over and Jesus restores you to even more than you had before? Are you kind of like John who really wants Jesus to be something he's not? See, as followers of Jesus, we should want to know who Jesus is. We shouldn't want to make him something we're not because he knows the plans he has for you. He plans to prosper you, not to harm you. He plans to give you hope in a future, but not necessarily the hope in the future that you want. When you pray and you don't get what you're asking for, we get mad because he says, if you ask, it will be given. If you seek, you will find. But we don't always remember that we would answer our prayers the same way God does if we had all the information that God has. We have to choose to trust that he knows better and that he wants what's best even when it doesn't feel like it. We have to understand that he will not waste our pain, but that doesn't mean that we won't have pain. So in just a moment, we're going to take, we're going to experience a sacrament. This isn't what the disciples expected. On the night before Jesus died, it's Passover, and he takes bread, and he says, this is my body. He breaks it. He says, this is my body. And he says that this is the blood, my blood poured out for the new, it's my blood. Drink it. But take it. It's a new covenant for the forgiveness of sins, and, and one's going to betray me, and I'm going to die. No! It's not what they expected. But what if he didn't do it? We're all doomed. So when you, when you get that little square of bread when it comes by, and you get that little cup of juice, And you're encouraged to take, eat, drink, remember and believe that Jesus is who he claims to be and that you belong to him, body and soul and life and death to your faithful savior, Jesus Christ. Ask the Lord to remind you of who he is and to correct you where you've got him wrong. Where you have expectations that are not unrealistic, but ungodly. And one last thing. The scriptures tell us when we take communion, not to do it in an unworthy manner. Now, this is all about grace. We get what we don't deserve. But there are times when we lord it over other people. And one of the ways we do that is we hold a grudge against someone who's done us wrong. When Jesus says, if you forgive your brother when he sins against you, my heavenly father will forgive you. And if you don't, he won't. So if there's some, if there's a grudge you're holding on to, and you want taking communion to be the act to God, an offering of your pain to God and say, I wipe this clean. Your, what you did for me is sufficient for what, your blood is sufficient to forgive me my sins, so it's sufficient to forgive those who sin against me. I encourage you to use this as an act, an offering of your pain to God. But if you can't do that yet, just let the plate pass by. Because the scriptures say, if we eat and drink of the cup, if we eat of the cup and drink of the, if we eat of the bread and drink of the cup in an unworthy manner, we might be drinking and eating condemnation onto ourselves, and I don't want that for you. I don't. So I'm going to pray, 
and pastors Chris and Kurt are going to come up to do the words of institution. We're going to celebrate this sacrament together. But after I pray, I'm going to ask them to wait 30 seconds before they speak and just do a little soul searching. And if there's something that you need to let go of, there's something you need to confess, I encourage you to do that. Not to me, not to your neighbor, but to God. Because God knows all. And confession is just telling him what he already knows. Let's pray together. Almighty God, you are almighty and we aren't. You're God and we aren't. I pray that you give us the courage to hear from you and learn who you are, not who we want you to be. Give us strength, but more than that, Lord, give us mercy. We ask that you hear our prayers of confession, that you forgive us from all unrighteousness, and that you make us white as snow, that you take our offenses away from us like the morning mist as we return to you, our Lord and Savior. Amen. One of the things I think I'll ask when I get there, I probably have other things on my mind at that time, but when I get there, I think I'm going to ask if I can meet that young man from Nain, because I wonder if he sat up and said, professional wrestling is real. I, I, don't, I, I have no idea. Um, hey, 365 times, you've heard me say this before, it says in Scripture, fear not, do not be afraid, or why are you afraid? In response, God interacting with his people, his people get scared. Um, what we don't always understand, though, is that, yeah, sometimes we're scared that God's going to, won't act, and then we're scared when he does. But we don't understand that he's not afraid of us. We know he's not, but sometimes we clean ourselves up before we come to him. But that's kind of like cleaning up before you take a shower. You take a shower in order to get clean. You don't clean up so you're clean enough to take a shower. Jesus is, his blood washes over us and cleanses us of all unrighteousness. He makes us as white as snow. He says that our sins are gone like the morning mist if we return to him and he redeems us. So he's not afraid of you. It says bring it all. It's nothing he ain't seen before. Anything you've thought, the sin that you hide from everybody else, the th whatever it is, he's not afraid of it. What he wants is something raw, something real, something honest. Because you are his poema. You're, he says, says that you are his masterpiece. And so if you give him raw material... He's got something to work with and he will make you into the person, the man, the woman, the child that he wants you to be. And all you get to do is participate with him, to cooperate with him so that you become who you already are in Christ. Yes, you're a sinner and yes, you're a saint. But if we become more the saint and less the sinner, praise be to God because we're more like the one who called us to himself. So receive God's blessing knowing that it goes out and it will accomplish what he sent it to do. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you, be gracious to you. The Lord turn his countenance toward you. You take God's face and he smiles at you and give you peace. And all of God's people say, amen. Go with and in the peace of Christ.